Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 64 of the Forge of Freedom. Today, I have a special guest with me on the show, Jeff Knox. Uh, Jeff is the director of the Firearms Coalition, an independent rights advocacy organization comprised of gun clubs, grassroots organizations, and individual activists. Founded in 1984 uh, by gun rights legend Neil Knox, the coalition has been actively working to educate, inform, and influence the public and our servants for almost 40 years. Uh, So with that being said, today we're going to talk about the NRA and the struggles that it's been facing and uh, Jeff's efforts to reform and and save the NRA, hopefully. Uh, So uh, with that being said, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Alex. It's nice to be here and uh, happy to share what I know. Yeah. What I think I I know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, thankfully for our listeners, I I think you know a great deal more about the troubles facing the NRA than I do, the the history of the NRA and some of the reform efforts that have been attempted and that are currently underway. So I I think that our listeners will will enjoy listening to, to your thoughts on this subject a great deal. I certainly look forward to our conversation. So so thanks again for joining the show. If you don't mind just starting out, would you say a little bit about who you are and a little bit about the Firearms Coalition? All right. Well, as you mentioned, the Firearms Coalition was founded back in 1984 by my father, Neil Knox. Um, Dad had been a gun rights activist for his whole life. Um, he uh, He really had his epiphany moment uh, at National Guard camp in about 1957, when one of his fellow guardsmen, uh, a uh, Belgian corporal uh, by the name of Charles Denier, uh, was telling him about his experience in World War II. Charles was uh, just a teenager, a, a preteen, uh, in World War II when the the Germans came plowing into his little village and uh, murdered his best friend and his entire family because his friend's father couldn't find a pistol that he had uh, registered as having brought back from World War I. And um, as Charles told Dad this story, um, Dad was very moved. And uh, when he got back home to um, the West Texas Sportsman's Club, he stood up at their next meeting and he said, hey, uh, I want to know about your legislative policy committee and uh, if if I can participate in that. And the president of the club said, well, Neil, we don't have a legislative policy committee, so you're the new chairman. And it went on from there. Dad was a newspaper man. He um, 
was writing for gun magazines uh, on a freelance basis. And in 1966, he got a job off of a blind posting in the back of Guns Magazine that was looking for an editor for a new firearms publication. That publication turned out to be Gun Week. Um, and Dad became the editor of Gun Week and uh, a major contributor to to their pages and got that off the ground and uh, then went on to be the editor and publisher of Rifle and Handloader magazines for Wolf Publishing. And throughout his writing career, he was always very involved in the political side. Dad was a national champion bench rest shooter. He was uh, anything with a trigger dad could do well and um, had uh, numerous accolades in that regard. But he uh, also was very keen on the gun rights issue and Second Amendment issues and would frequently pen editorials um, encouraging people to be more involved and, and letting people know what was going on in Washington and so forth. So in 1975, when he learned that the NRA was planning to get out of the gun rights business completely, um, he and some others started looking closer, and in 1977, they staged a revolt at the NRA members' meeting in Cincinnati, and that was the turning point for the NRA. The NRA, from that point, moved to a uh, much more firm footing in support of the Second Amendment, and uh, it was just a, a year later that Harlan Carter convinced Dad to leave his home and his dream job in Prescott, Arizona, and go out to D.C. to do battle face-to-face -face with the Congress critters. And Dad took over NRA ILA and um, shifted that. The, the Washington Post referred to it as what once had been a paper tiger is now a sophisticated computerized lobbying juggernaut. And within two years of Dad taking over, uh, he was listed as one of the most influential, one of the 100 most influential people in Washington and um, really raised the bar for gun rights activism. The uh, NRA at the time went from about a half a million members to two million members, and shortly they had three million members. And that's when Dad was unceremoniously booted from the organization or from his leadership role in the organization, and um, things took a, a not as good turn. And uh, ever since then, uh, since 1977, the Knox family has been actively trying to push the NRA in the right direction, uh, a solid principled defense of the fundamental human right of firearms ownership and self-defense. And um, that became the Firearms Coalition in 1984. The NRA was uh, negotiating behind the scenes with Mario Biaggi on the armor-piercing bullet ban, and uh, they were reporting to their members that they were a hard no and that they had laid down the law and they weren't negotiating and they weren't, uh, weren't compromising while at the same time they were very actively negotiating and compromising. And Dad created the Firearms Coalition to try and get the word out to people, to try and lobby the NRA to do what they should be doing. 
And uh, we've continued doing that since 1984, so almost 40 years. And that, that fight continues till today, and, and we'll certainly get into those uh, issues with the NRA going on today and, and the efforts of you and, and others to try to get the NRA to, to do what they they need to be doing. But certainly your, your father, Neil Knox, was, was a legend in, in the gun rights movement. Uh, and you said the, the Knox family, you have, uh, is it one sibling or, or multiple siblings? That, I, that... I have a brother who's very involved and two sisters who are tertiarily involved. And of okay. course, my mother was dad's strong right hand for many, many years. Um, and uh, uh, sad to say that she's currently dementia has, has pretty much taken her away from us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that. Uh, I, I know your father also, it's on your website and I'll, I'll link to this so our, our listeners can uh, have ac easy access to it, but he wrote a book, right? The, the gun rights war. Uh, and I, I can't see it here, but I think that was it a foreword or an introduction that was written by Chris Knox? Is that your brother? Uh, Chris annotated it. Uh, Chris okay. put it together. It's actually a compilation of Dad's writings going all the way back to, I think, 1966. Uh, he wrote a, a major piece for Guns and Ammo about the uh, Gun Control Act, the Dodd Bill that was being pushed at the time. And really, in today's world, this what people refer to as, as uh, gun culture 2.0. It's really common um, for people to, um, gun owners, to dismiss FUDs and talk about the mistakes of the past. But I'll tell you what, if you own a gun today, thank a FUD, because those good old boys, the deer hunters and, and the target shooters, they might not have done everything perfect, and there are a lot of things that we wish that they would have done differently. But the mental, the the position, the the zeitgeist at the time was extremely different, and we gun owners were trying to be reasonable and trying to just get along, and we didn't know at that time. They didn't know. I was just a kid, but they didn't know just how vociferous and um, nonstop the the hoplophobes really are, and um, the lessons that they learned, which you can easily see reading Dad's works back in the '60s and the '70s, you can see where we thought we needed to go and where we were making mistakes and um, why we can't be reasonable now. We've learned that reasonable is not an option. Uh, anything that we allow them to take or that we give them, they take and they run with it and they push for more and more and more. The only reason that gun control doesn't work is because there's not enough of it. And that's their philosophy. And every time it fails, which they always do, uh, their answer is more gun control. And there is no middle ground. And actually, you know, we sponsored a uh, a rally. We participated. I, I was very active in, in the creation of the rally in D.C. 
uh, a couple of years ago, uh, right at the beginning of the COOF. And one of our uh, speakers at that was a fellow by the name of Dan Gross, who had been the president of the Brady campaign. And a lot of people got mad because we brought Gross into the conversation. But what he contributed to the conversation was the fact that he had left Brady because he realized it wasn't about saving lives. It was about getting rid of guns. And he disagreed with that. He still supports various forms of gun control and restrictions, but um, he tries to keep the focus on effective and saving lives. And we just haven't been able to prove to him that there's no such thing. <laughs> you can't, You can't stop a murderer from doing what murderers do by restricting my gun rights. And I, I refuse to participate in anything like that. But it's yeah. good to have those conversations with people who uh, are sincere in what their beliefs are. And uh, I think that's important here in 2023 with cancel culture, what it is. I, I think we need to be careful not to be part of that cancel culture and to listen to other perspectives and educate them, let them know why they're wrong because they're absolutely wrong. Yeah. One thing I'd like to, to mention, uh, most of my listeners are, are fairly informed in, in the gun community, uh, but many of them aren't and, and come to this podcast for more broadly freedom related perspectives. Uh, so I'd like to mention a few things. Uh, number one, I think with the break, when you say he left Brady, uh, that was the Brady campaign, right? Which is a, a gun mm -hmm. control organization or an organization that promotes gun control. And as right. you said, what's often referred to as reasonable gun control mm -hmm. in, in their sense of what is reasonable. But like you pointed out, and I've heard Tom Gresham from Gun Talk make this point many times, what's reasonable is let's talk about how many laws against or restricting the right to keep and bear arms we can repeal because there are thousands of laws restricting the right to keep and bear arms as you say, that most of which, probably all of which don't work and are totally ineffective. So let, let's compromise on which ones we can repeal, not which ones we're going to add. That's the reasonable approach to take, not right. reasonable and in the sense that— all of the all of the federal ones need to be repealed because the federal right. government has no authority to be restricting firearms in any way whatsoever. And— um, of course, then we move on down to the states, and the state governments have very limited authority to do anything like that, uh, if any at all. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course, thanks to the Bruin decision, and, and again, all of you NRA bashers, the Bruin decision came straight out of NRA and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Um, and it was a much better decision than anybody ever anticipated. Um, uh, Justice Thomas just knocked it straight out of the park. And so I encourage everyone, please pray for Justice Thomas's health. Always. Uh, he is our rock in the Supreme Court. And uh, God bless him. <laughs> yeah. 
Amen. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing I'd like to mention, and I, before we jump into the current state of affairs at the NRA, because like you say, there are lots of reasons to criticize the NRA, but there are lots of reasons we should be thankful for what the NRA has, has done. Uh, but when did you, you talked a little bit about the history of, of the Firearms Coalition. When did you get involved in, in earnest in, in the effort to sort of stem the tide of gun control? Um, probably around age 14, uh, was, was, was when I really started reading and started studying. And, um, I, uh, that of course grew over the years. Uh, whenever I was close to dad, I was actively involved with whatever he was doing, but, uh, the current iteration, well, and I remember someone asking me when I was in the army, what I wanted to be when I grew up and, I I lamented that what I really wanted to do was what my dad does. Uh, Dad was at that time the executive director of NRA ILA. And uh, I I said, you know, that's what I would really love to do. But unfortunately, there's there's really only room for one Knox in that that fight. And that was my thinking at the time. Dad was never big on nepotism. And um, so I didn't think that that was a possibility. In uh, 2002, I was living in Washington State. I was running a radio station up there in Spokane. And um, I decided to put my money where my mouth was, and I made a run for the state legislature, for the state house. Uh, running in a solidly Democrat district as a Republican against a six-term incumbent who was fairly well-liked. And as a matter of fact, he was somewhat of a friend of mine, also a radio guy. Um, and I would have him come in and sub on, on my radio station occasionally. But uh, anyway, uh, he had messed up and I decided to challenge him. And I had to step down from my position with the radio station And after I lost that race, not nearly by as much as people had anticipated, but I I did lose the race. And uh, I found myself out of a job and at uh, loose ends. And uh, Republicans don't take care of their young up and coming prospects as well as Democrats do. And uh, I uh, decided that I wanted to get involved in uh, uh, campaign strategy and and campaign consulting. And I decided that to do that, I needed to go back to D.C. where everything was going on, take some classes. And dad was also wanting to um, get a little bit of help so that he could write a couple of books that he had been talking about. So Janet and I moved back to D.C. and uh, I uh, started doing some ghostwriting for dad and taking care of more of his daily work so that he could focus on some some writing. And it turned out that God had different plans because um, while I thought I was there to free up dad to write, uh, the the reality was I was actually there to spend time with dad and to free him up for chemotherapy because he was very shortly after I got there diagnosed with uh, uh, a uh, severe colon cancer. And it took him in January of 2005. Um, After dad's death, 
uh, there was a lot of hemming and hawing about what was going to happen with the firearms coalition. Um, we, uh, as a family, got together and discussed whether we wanted to try and keep it going. Um, we talked with uh, advisors like Bob Hodgden of Hodgden Powder was a dear friend. Ken Ayler is a dear friend uh, of Ayler Chronographs. Um, Bob Honeycutt, the uh, editor of Shotgun News Magazine, where we had been publishing a weekly article for years. And all of them said, let's give it a shot. You guys should try it. Jeff is doing a lot of writing. The people like his writing. Um, so Bob graciously allowed me to continue with the Knox report in, fire, in uh, Shotgun News, which is now Firearms News. And um, we sent out a newsletter and Dad's supporters were overwhelmingly supportive of the idea of us continuing. And so from 2005 until 2011, I worked in Virginia, just outside D.C. I went up on the hill regularly and found out that that was a huge waste of time. Um, it was much more effective to talk with legislative aides on the phone and through email than it was to go and try and get face-to-face -face time with Congress critters. And um, Janet and I were wanting to get back home to Arizona. And so the family decided, they agreed that uh, we could purchase the business. And here I had been working for almost 10 years for uh, free, basically. I was, I was working another job full-time and um, never took more than about $1,000 a month from the Firearms Coalition. And um, so we, we bought it and we moved to Arizona and kept it going. Um, we didn't know at the time that mom's dementia had kicked in. She was wanting out of the whole thing. Um, but uh, anyway, we, we moved to Arizona. I kept working at other jobs and uh, doing, keeping the Firearms Coalition alive until about 2013 when most of those other jobs went away. And uh, we've uh, continued since then. We made a move a couple of years ago down here to the Tombstone area. Finally got our little house in the country. And we love it here. Had some family tragedies along the way. But uh, so now here we are on our little piece of property out in the boondocks. And our 17-year-old uh, grandson uh, just turned 17. He's living with us and going to the local high school. And uh, uh, things are, are going well. Wonderful. Well, I'm, cer I'm certainly glad that you continued the organization uh, after the tragic loss of your father, I'm, I'm I'm sure he would be glad to see that it it's still going strong today. Uh, so uh, that's a wonderful tribute to him and to the influence he had on on you and your other family members. So well, and it's really so thank you for that. When, uh, it's really uplifting uh, uplifting when I I get notes from guys who have been with the coalition for thirty years or more, and they say your father would be proud, uh, and and that. That means a lot to me. It really does. Yeah. But at the same I didn't time, know I... well, I, at the same time, I, I always feel like that 
that four-year-old kid, you know, wearing his dad's cowboy boots that come all the way up above his thighs. I I don't think that uh, there's any way that I could ever fill dad's shoes, but I, I've kept his boots moving in the right direction for the last 20 years. Well, I, I, I never knew your father, but I'm certain he would, he would be proud. So, so thanks. Thanks again for, for keeping it going and and the wonderful work that you do. Uh, So one thing I'd like to mention, you mentioned Congress critters a few times. I I like that, that phrase. I think so many people overestimate their ability to make change in Washington, DC, in, in the swamp. And, And I think really the change is made out on the ground, uh, in, you know, wearing the boots and fighting for change. Uh, and that's kind of what you're up to today, right? Uh, trying to reform the, the NRA. So I think with that in mind, would you mind to say a little bit about what's going on with the NRA? What's been revealed over the last few years in terms of its, its troubles and, and, uh, some not so, uh, or, I should say some rather nefarious things that are going on within the organization uh, right. and what its hopes are for the future. Well, um, let me start by saying that uh, uh, three other guys and myself have joined together as reform candidates, and we're circulating petitions to get our four names on the ballot for the NRA board of directors in the coming election. Um, that's a tough road to hoe. Uh, we need to each of us collect 500 signatures from uh, valid voting members of NRA. That's people who are life members or have been consistent annual members for at least five years. So we're trying to do that, and we'll talk more about that down the line. But the reason that we're trying to do that is that um, NRA is in a mess right now. And the board of directors is not doing what they need to do to clean up and correct the mess. Back in 2019, it really broke out into the public, uh, though I had been writing articles of concern about what was going on inside NRA for several years. The uh, In 2019, an investigative reporter that had been hired by Mike Bloomberg uh, of course, Bloomberg is an anti-gun mil- billionaire, and he has a uh, propaganda mill called The Trace. And Bloomberg hired this guy, not, his name's Mike Spies, uh, as an investigative reporter to dig up dirt on the NRA. And at the time, people were looking at some shady things that might have gone on with the way they were uh, funding campaigns for uh, Congress and Senate. Um, There was also a scandal about their connection with a particularly attractive Russian spy. And um, then there was also a lot of concern about the salaries that were being paid at NRA and the funds that were going out to outside contractors uh, in huge dollar amounts. And the lack of proper oversight of all of that. And it turned out as Mike Spies started digging in, he found that the the campaign finance issues were very difficult to prove and there wasn't much interest in pursuing those. The Russian spy scandal was 
mostly just a, a tempest in a teapot. Um, the NRA guys didn't do much wrong. There were things they could have done better in that situation, but it, it wasn't a huge scandal. But then he started finding whistleblowers that had recently been pushed out of NRA who had tried to raise the alarm about some of the problems within the organization. And those turned out to be huge, huge issues and major scandals. Um, personally, I think paying the CEO of NRA, Wayne LaPierre, uh, over a million and a half dollars a year, I, I consider that uh, just simply wrong to send out letters to average Joe blue collar gun owner begging for $20 donations and then putting those $20 donations by the thousands into uh, the executive's pockets. Um, that's not the way NRA is supposed to be. That's not the way any nonprofit organization should be. And uh, we were busily doing that. Uh, Wayne has made as much as $3 million a year from NRA um, and actually a little over five one year because of some uh, uh, retirement fund payout thing that I never have quite understood, but he, he got a, a two million, almost $3 million uh, payout from the retirement fund that year. Um, but it really comes down to, we were paying outside contractors tens of millions of dollars every year without proper oversight of those contracts. And many things that were required to be approved by the board of directors never were brought to the board of directors. Many things that required competitive bidding were never brought to competitive bidding. Many conflicts of interest uh, that were uncovered uh, that were supposed to be discussed with the audit committee were done so retroactively. So, you know, Wayne did this and took this and accepted that, but uh, failed to report it to the audit committee. But now he's reporting it to the audit committee. So they rubber stamp it and retroactively say it was okay. And then he continues. Uh, I don't think that the, the uh, uh, executive vice president of NRA should be um, flying on private jets and staying in presidential suite accommodations and having limo service. And I particularly don't think he should be doing that on my dime um, with his family going to the Bahamas where he's spending time on a yacht that belongs to one of the contractors that he's giving sweetheart deals to. Um, it's just there's a lot of corruption out there. And what should have happened? Uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say a, a lot of it starts with with Wayne and, and his oh, mismanagement absolutely. of the organization. But there's also another point here, too, is that right the, the board of directors hasn't been engaged like they need to be to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Can, can you say right. a little they bit about that? They haven't been providing the proper oversight. And it it became really apparent after this story broke. The the story was published um, in the New Yorker magazine. Uh, just days before the NRA convention in Indianapolis in 2019. Um, it turned out that then-President Ollie North had uh, 
been raising some of these issues and miraculously wasn't renominated for his second term as president. Traditionally, the president serves two terms and then steps down and the, the first vice president is elected to be the president. But Ali had served one term and was unceremoniously not renominated in 2019. And um, then Wayne actually accused him of trying to extort Wayne into re resigning. Uh, then we find out that Wayne had a uh, a contract that promised to continue paying him at full salary in perpetuity uh, as a consultant. So not only were we paying him 1.7 million or more per year, but if he decided to walk away for any reason, he would continue to get paid that 1.7 million dollars or more per year. Um, as a consultant, regardless of any contribu contribution he might make, the the treasurer that Wayne brought in at the time that he was elevated to the executive vice president position, a guy named Woody Phillips, um, had just retired and also taken a ridiculous golden parachute that kept paying him um, when uh, when all of this broke, the uh, there was a lot of rumor that the Attorney General of New York, where NRA is chartered, uh, we had advised them to move out of New York decades prior, but they were still chartered, are still chartered in New York, which gives them, gives the governor and the attorney general oversight over the association. And there had been rumors that the attorney general was going to bring a suit, the, starting an investigation. And NRA had instituted a uh, a cleanup program where they had gone back over contracts and uh, brought things to the audit committee to get rubber stamped retroactively and had instituted a few new policies and procedures, but there was no course correction regarding the people who had done the wrong in the first place. Um, specifically, Wayne LaPierre, the uh, secretary, John Fraser, the uh, treasurer, Woody Phillips, and Wayne's top assistant, a guy named Josh Powell. Um, at the same time, they had uh, just a couple years before introduced NRA Carry Guard. They had revamped the whole education and training division, which had that in a shambles. Carry Guard was falling apart. It was being kicked out of numerous states for violating their insurance rules and regulations. Um, NRA had filed suit against the governor of New York because they had advised banks and insurance companies to stop doing business with them. Um, it was it was just a mess. And at that point, the proper thing for the NRA board of directors to have done would have been at a minimum to suspend Wayne LaPierre, to move him and the, the other three named defendants that that eventually were named in the, the New York lawsuit, but suspend the top executives, um, do a very thorough audit and reorganization, uh, uh, reevaluation of all of the policies and procedures, uh, make as much course correction as they could, and replace anybody who had fallen short of their fiduciary responsibilities. Instead, 
And I wrote an article at that time saying that they had two choices. They can either do this and then stand naked before the court and say, here we are, we've fixed all of these problems. We've gotten rid of the people who caused these problems. And we've established this for going forward. Court, what do you say? Let's, let's, let's fix this. And um, at that point, I think that everything would have been fine. We, we would have taken a hit for the problems and we would have had to prove to the membership that uh, we now had things back on track and we, we were dotting every I and crossing every T. But as, as I said in that article, their other option would be to circle around Wayne LaPierre, circle the wagons around Wayne, and continue circling straight down the drain. And that's the option that they chose. And we have seen it ever since. Uh, our revenue, our annual revenue, at in 2017-2018, annual revenue was almost $400 million. That's just staggering. $400 million coming into NRA every year. And by 2022, that was down to about $194 million a year. Wow. Um, just staggering. Membership. Almost half of our members are life members, and the other half are annual members. The life members, they've already paid their dues. All of that money has been spent. The annual members are the guys who keep the organization alive. We've lost at least 25% of our annual members since 2016, 2018. Um, we, it could be as much as 30 to 40%. Our revenue from dues has gone down by almost 40%. Um, in any right-thinking organization, the CEO would be fired. Uh, but they keep holding on to Wayne. I can't begin to understand why. They have re-elected him as executive vice president, CEO, five times since this story broke. They re-elect well, him year by year, and they've re-elected him five times since this scandal broke. And that's just shameless. And and as you say, I, I was at the, the NRA, the 2019 NRA annual meeting, and that uh, second option, that sort of circling of the wagons around Wayne LaPierre happened pretty quickly. Uh, there was yes. a lot of uh, movement, a lot of shuffling, but eventually the, the, the wagons, as you say, did circle around him. And I think part of that, we talked about this a little bit uh, in previous conversation, I think is is partly due to the structure of the NRA and, and the way that the board is organized and, and composed. Right. Uh, it, right. it, would you say a little bit about that? Because, I mean, there are just so many members of the board and, and it, it just yeah. seems like so many of them are in there in support of Wayne and that's their sole purpose. Right. The the NRA Board of Directors is 76 members. Uh, it was 75 for many, many years. And then some lawyer said, found a clause that he thought that we had to elect one in the open membership. And so we started electing one director during the annual meeting of members, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. But thinking back, 
the NRA board of directors was once upon a time like the board of directors of your state association. It was a, a shooting club. And moving on to the board of directors was kind of a a um, a badge of honor. And so they kept expanding the size of the board. And uh, it's always only a handful of people who are actually doing the work of the board of directors. Um, most of the members of the board serve on a variety of committees and they do they do work, but they're, it's not the work of managing the NRA. And with 76 members, it can't be the work of managing the NRA because it's just too big. You can't get consensus. You can't, uh, uh, you can't manage a board that large. The NRA board of directors now, you know, that we're a 200 to $400 million a year. And, and I think it's really important to note that all of the other national gun rights organizations together don't comprise 10% of what the NRA draws in every year uh, or was drawing in every year. Um, they barely, barely reach 10% of what the NRA is currently bringing in. And so people who say, you know, let it go, uh, we don't need it, there's better organizations. Well, those better organizations don't do everything that the NRA does and can't seem to garner the membership and the contributions that the NRA has. So I think that's really important to note. And one of the reasons that I'm so dedicated to try and reform NRA rather than simply watching it die. Um, so my idea on the board of directors is that it needs to be cut down to somewhere like nine to 13 members that the the current board, the the 76 that we have, needs to be scooted over into something that we call a, an advisory committee. It needs to be trimmed down to about 50 members. So you have one elected in each state from the, the residents, NRA member residents of that state, and that that advisory committee does all of the committee work that the NRA board currently does, and they appoint the professional board of directors that actually runs the association. I think that would be much more logical. It would be much more responsive. It would be much more accountable. Um, and if I get the opportunity, I will push a uh, a restructuring to to that direction. But um, as it is, we have a handful of members of the board of directors who are uh, old and established and are deeply committed to Wayne. And frankly, Alex, it's, it's really hard, and I understand this, to have someone that you consider a, a dear friend, someone who you're very close to and that you respect tremendously, to look you in the eye and say, trust me, I didn't do this. We did everything by the book. This is just a witch hunt. It's just an anti-gun propaganda scheme. And if you'll stick by me, we'll get through this. It's hard to walk away from that. It's hard to, it's hard to say, wait a minute, I think you're lying to me. But ever since that 2019 meeting, when Wayne in essence, did that. He he looked each board member in the eye and 
and said that. And then the the prominent board members, the the Marion Hammers uh, and and so forth, um, they individually went to people and said, "You've got to support Wayne. He's our only hope. He's this is just a witch hunt. You've got to trust me. We know something you don't know, and we can't tell you, but trust us." we're going to win this thing any day now. And that any day now has stretched out to over four years and uh, has cost us at least $200 million in attorney's fees alone. $200 million. We have one law firm that was paid over $60 million last year, and we expect that we're going to pay them well over $60 million this year. And that's not Second Amendment advocacy. That's not litigation to support Bruin. That's strictly the legal costs of defending Wayne and company. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, huge problem. And, and simultaneously, like you said, with the down uh, downward trend in revenue uh, from 400,000 uh, 400 million to less than 200 million uh, just since 2018, I think you said. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this huge increase in legal bills defending Wayne and, and the NRA and huge decrease in revenues. And it's all on the backs of the, the donations, the small donations from, from members nationwide. Well, you mentioned, you alluded to this earlier that, uh, that when you were talking about the, the pay of the executives of the NRA and Wayne LaPierre in particular, that that payment is being made with these donations from the millions of members nationwide that the, mm -hmm. the blue collar members, the, the hardworking members, the people who care about the right to keep and bear arms. And those dollars are being spent to defend these actions of, of, of Wayne. Uh, so, and that's, that's incredibly sad because one of the things that's always been so wonderful about the NRA is that it's had influence because of its members. And, uh, you know, unlike the Bloomberg organizations that are funded by Bloomberg, the billionaire, and have very little institutional energy other than what can be bought, uh, right. you know, Mostly the NRA is, is, yeah, the, the NRA is powerful because they're so, they have so many members, so many motivated members who want to protect the right to keep and bear arms. And, and right. they're True unfortunately- grassroots. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Um, one thing you mentioned, too, is that I think is important to point out again that uh, these other organizations like the Second Amendment Foundation, the Firearms Policy Coalition, Gun Owners of America, uh, they don't great organizations and they're doing wonderful work. Absolutely. But as you said, they, they don't account for even 10 percent of what the NRA was uh, able and to account for at least a few years ago. Right. And while NRA has been falling, these groups have been growing, but they haven't grown nearly as much as NRA has depleted. So we have literally over a million guys who have walked away from the gunfight because they walked away from NRA. They walked away from NRA and they have not shifted allegiance to any other organization. They haven't moved their donations to other organizations. You you look at it in YouTube videos and, and comments on articles, and you would think that everybody has shifted over to 
some other organization and making their their contributions and a, a personal frustration for me is we we've been running the firearms coalition for almost 40 years and i write these articles pointing out what's going on with nra and invariably i get multiple comments down underneath from guys saying, well, I'm sending all of my money to SAF or GOA or NAGR or uh, Firearms Policy Coalition. And, and I'm, they're going, guys, just a couple of bucks my way would really help <laughs> to keep me uh, reporting this and, and keep you informed, you know. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, we've lost over a million members and they haven't gone somewhere else. They've just gone. And uh, Wayne LaPierre, you know, initially they were saying, well, Wayne can go out and go to these functions and he can raise a million dollars in a day. Yes, he could back when he was trusted. Um, he can't anymore. Uh, he doesn't get phone calls from presidents anymore. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have the the political sway anymore. He doesn't have the fundraising sway anymore. So the only reason that they're holding on to him is through loyalty to him personally. And while that's somewhat admirable, uh, at the same time, it's not the way to run a business. And uh, it's incredibly frustrating to me. But, you know, when we have a an NRA convention, and 80,000 people show up to look at all the guns and gear down on the floor and to go to hear the politicians speak and and maybe 500 to 1,000 actually go to the members meeting and hear the business of NRA. Um, but when you've got 80,000 NRA members uh, in that room and half of them are life members, possibly more than half, our life members. Um, that's 40,000 NRA donations, NRA memberships that are going straight into Wayne's pocket because that's how many people it takes to pay his salary at $35 a pop. And that's, I'm sorry, that's, it's sinful is what it is. It's immoral. And it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't have been leading up to this. And these guys who don't understand that, I I have trouble understanding where their heads are. Back in 1978, 79, 80, okay, 1982, NRA had grown to almost 3 million members from half a million members. My dad, as executive director of NRA ILA, was being paid about $60,000 a year and got a company car and a very small uh, expense account. Uh, Harlan Carter was being paid about $85,000 a year. When you convert that into current money, that comes out to $250,000, a year. Um, Wayne was being paid in 1997. He was being paid about $250,000 a year. Dad was the first vice president. He was in line to be the president the following year. Marion Hammer was the president. And dad, being uh, one of the officers, 
the the three officers, the first vice pre the president, the first vice president, and the second vice president are also the executive compensation committee. They're the ones who decide how much the executives get paid. Dad was holding the line. Uh, he was also holding the line on how much we were paying contractors for fundraising letters and things like that. And they got rid of him. They brought in Charlton Heston specifically to bump dad out of the chairs. And a year later, Wayne was being paid $400,000 a year. And two years after that, he was being paid $600,000 a year. And about two years after that, he was being paid $800,000 a year. Um, that's wrong. It shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have been allowed. And frankly, the audit committee that we have now, the chair and vice chair of the audit committee are Charles Cotton and David Coy. David Coy, by the way, is up for re-election in this next election. Please don't vote for him. But David Coy was the chairman of the audit committee for many years, and then he became vice chair when Cotton moved up to be the chairman. But they are still the chair and vice chair of the audit committee. That's the committee that's supposed to be looking with a fine-tooth comb at all of the transactions within NRA and making sure that they're kosher. And these two specifically have failed hugely in their fiduciary duties, but they are currently not only the chair and vice chair of the audit committee, but they are the president and the, vi the second vice president of the association. I have a big problem with that, too. Yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier is that since 2019, when, when this news about uh, sort of corruption within the NRA uh, came, became more public, uh, you'd been reporting on it for, for some time some, about some concerns within the NRA. But the message from the NRA since 2019 has been, like you said, trust us. We know what we're doing. We're doing, we're fighting for you. We're doing the right thing. This is just a witch hunt, all these things. Well, through lots of litigation, uh, which, as you said, has cost the NRA uh, millions and millions of dollars, we've learned that these a lot of these allegations were, in fact, true, yes. uh, and that there has been this massive mismanagement and sort of dereliction of, of duty uh, mm -hmm. to the members. And, and much uh, of that was admitted along the way that, that the, the first story would be, no, we didn't do that. And then the second story would be, well, there was a reason that we did that. And then the third story would be, well, we didn't know that that was happening. You know, it just it was story after story um, where they admitted that they had lied previously. And now they have a news story. And for some reason, the members of the board of directors keep believing the news story. And I can't fathom that. Yeah. And, and the NRA continues to, to fall off a, a cliff. Uh, financially, right. their expenses are rising. Their revenues are falling. Uh, Maybe facing bankruptcy in the near future. Uh, and their influence facing... and their trust has fallen. And, and that's, that's significant. Yeah, huge. And, and, and I want to add, before we get too much farther, I want to add that it's not only the money. The, the money is a big deal. There's no question mm -hmm. about it. But through the years, Wayne, Wayne came up as a political 
activist. He he was uh, a legislative aide to a Democratic uh, uh, state legislator in Virginia, and I believe he became an L.A. for uh, a uh, congressman. Uh, there were rumors that he was up for the job of Tip O'Neill's chief of staff when he took the job at NRA in 1978. Um, but he was not a gun guy, and he was not a gun activist. He was a political activist. He was a political uh, player. And um, like so many politicians, it seems that his uh, approach to the Second Amendment is one from a political standpoint, that it's a chip on the table. And over the years, when, when NRA has been pressed, Wayne has repeatedly violated the core principles of our fight. Um, after Think about Columbine, the ban. Right. Right. That's the most recent that Wayne right. came out with a joint statement with him and Chris Cox. And I wrote several articles condemning this and calling on the board to repudiate it. But he said the NRA believes that these devices should be more tightly regulated. And he had Donald Trump's ear at that time. Uh, prior to that, he had stated that the NRA believes in zero tolerance, no guns in schools, period. He had stated that the NRA believes in background checks at all gun shows. He had stated that the NRA believes um, that uh, red flag laws with due process should be passed in every state. Uh, th these are not my principles or my goals and should not, are not the goals of uh, or the principles of the National Rifle Association of America, yet we allowed our chief executive officer to claim that they were. And mm -hmm. that's, again, inexcusable. So, so the NRA is is facing not only uh, deep financial trouble, a deep problem with with trust. Uh, they've had a history in recent years of uh, engaging in, in using our fundamental, our core fundamental right to keep and bear arms as a bargaining chip for political purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you change that, and and how do you respond? Uh, you've talked a little bit about changing the composition of the board. Uh, how do you change that? How do you change the direction of the NRA? And what do you say to people that say it's a lost cause? Let's, let's just let it collapse. Let's let it fail. Well, I honestly, I believe that the, the major reforms are going to come from the courts. Um, uh, at this point, the lawsuit from the New York attorney general is scheduled to go to trial in early 2024, uh, January or February of 2024. Um, I think there's a good chance that the NRA will again declare bankruptcy, this time with very solid grounds for doing so, because they are in way over their heads at this point. Um, they've got the, the headquarters building in, in uh, Northern Virginia up for sale. Um, they're talking about trying to move to Texas in this economy, I, I don't understand that. Um, but the um, whether it's through the bankruptcy or, or a new bankruptcy or some other, uh, an attempted settlement or actually going to trial, 
in the New York suit, which right now the NRA is demanding a jury trial in Manhattan. I'm not sure where they think they would find a jury that would give them a fair shake in Manhattan, but that's what they're demanding. I actually think that that's probably mostly a ruse on the part of their attorney, Bill Brewer, to um, delay the court case by demanding the jury trial. It would be very complicated to do this as a jury trial, and the judge doesn't want to do a full jury trial, and that's what they're demanding. Um, so one way or another, I think that the courts are who's going to eventually decide this. I am pretty sure that the NRA, as we know it, is not going to exist by the time that I could be elected to the board of directors. Um, the fact that I'm running, that uh, Phil and, and Rocky and Dennis and I are running, it could give us some sort of legal standing to at least answer questions that the judge might have about NRA's goals and objectives and what we want and what the members need for the NRA to be. Uh, we're not sure. But if I just sat it out, and watch to see what happens, um, I, I wouldn't be part of the solution. The, by running, um, it gives me the opportunity to maybe be part of the solution when the solution comes. But I think that definitely uh, a court is going to be uh, the impetus for reform within the NRA. I don't think it's going to come from the board of directors ever. Um, but uh, I think that the uh, I think it's very likely that the court will fire all of the executives, put a controller in charge, uh, dismiss the entire board of directors and hold a special election for new directors um, and restructure the entire thing from the top down. Um, I've written out uh, in previous articles my detailed um, ideas about what we could do and how we might like to see it reformed, but um, but yeah, I don't I don't see it happening from the inside. If I get inside, if there still is an NRA that I can be a part of the board of directors, that's what I'll advocate. Fire me, <laughs> hire some professionals to be the board of directors, guys who have solid Second Amendment bona fides and solid business knowledge and, and acumen. Um, Wayne has neither of those, and he's been running the association for the last 20 plus years. So um, that's that's where I see it. And that's why I continue to fight and continue to bang my head into a brick wall and tilt at windmills. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but sort of the way I see it, at least figuratively, is that there need to be the right sorts of people in place to pick up the pieces when there are pieces to pick up. And right. there are lots of bad pieces to pick up. And we want somebody in place that knows the organization, that knows the gun rights community, that knows what it, the, the core fundamental right of, uh, to keep and bear arms means. So that uh, there are lots of great uh, parts of the NRA that still exist, including its members. And we want the right sorts of folks Absolutely. to lead it to pick up the pieces, whether that's Absolutely. through bankruptcy or through some other mechanism. Right. And one of the big concerns 
is again back to trust if if the, the judge appoints an overseer a whatever you want to call them, a trustee to oversee the operations of the NRA and the reformation of the NRA, how much will the members trust that person? Um, it's going to be difficult to find someone who has both the business acumen and the credibility within the community to do that. Um, I I think that, you know, we have to, <clears throat> and I've said this for many years, um, Excuse me. <laughs> anyway, um, I've said this for many years that I think that the the executive vice president should either be a CEO or should be our chief spokesperson. I think trying to make him both is a mistake. Um, there are very few people who have the chops to be able to actually do that and do a good job at both jobs. Um, ideally, the um, uh, I think probably the executive vice president should be a Second Amendment purist who uh, knows how to hire somebody who knows how to run a business, a big yeah. business, because NRA is big business. But with... With all of our liabilities, that's producing the magazines, uh, running our, our physical infrastructure, uh, supporting our education and training, supporting our competitions, supporting our gun collectors and our museum, our fantastic museums. Um, with all of those liabilities and with the life members no longer contributing, that they don't pay dues. Um, if we don't have a uh, a good, strong, growing annual membership, uh, we can't survive. Uh, one of the the um, the good things, one of the high notes out there, is that we have the NRA Foundation. Um, the NRA Foundation is flush with money. Uh, they have set up a number of endowments that are multi-million dollar endowments. That's money that can't be directly touched for uh, things, although they've loaned a lot of money to the NRA in recent years. Um, and the NRA Foundation is currently under suit by the uh, Attorney General of Washington, D.C., and we don't know where that suit's going to go. Uh, I think that there's a very, just based on the wording of of the complaint, I think there's a very good chance that the foundation will be forced to sue the NRA to try and recoup some of the money that has flown flowed across into those coffers. But um, even if the NRA completely collapsed, I think that there's a possibility that the foundation could could reconstruct it, but it would never be what it has had the potential to be. And I think the NRA was only only what we wanted it to be. And I'm I'm a little biased on this point, but I I think it's only been what we really wanted it to be for about four years. Uh, between 1979 and 1982, when Harlan Carter was the executive vice president and Neil Knox was the executive director of NRA ILA. Um, 
um, that's when we were growing and marching and building and NRA members were proud to be NRA members. Um, Charlton Heston, while he was the president of the association, was a big boon. He was helpful once he got on the right script. Uh, he, he was able to open doors and um, bring up our prestige. Uh, my mother had advised that we hire him as our uh, uh, official spokesperson uh, years before he became uh, uh, a member of the board of directors. But, um, you know, we can look back and and frankly, there are very few people who have a knowledge of NRA history that's as deep as mine, because I've been paying attention to it since I was about 15 years old. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's it's a it's it's a difficult difficult situation, and I I have no idea uh, where it's going to go, how it's going to end up. So much depends on what the judges involved determine and who they put in what position and how it goes from there and whether the members will trust those people and whether we can get back on track. Um, it, it would, it's a, a horrible thought to me to think of the NRA completely melting down and becoming a non, a non entity, uh, in the future. And so I keep pushing. One thing I'd like you to talk about a little bit is uh, you have these petitions on your website, firearmscoalition.org, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But you've got the petition for, for you, and then you have three others here for Phil Journey, Rocky Marshall, and Dennis Fusaro. Would you mind to say a little bit about each of those folks and, and why you support their uh, campaign or their mission to to become members of the NRA board of directors. Okay, yeah. Uh, of the four of us, um, I, I mean, I I've talked about myself, so let me talk about the others. I I've known all of them for years. Um, actually, Dennis, I've probably known Dennis for almost forty years. Um, he uh, he walked into our offices uh, back in. Oh, somewhere around uh, 1984, and was looking for a job as uh, a Second Amendment activist. He eventually went to work for Gun Owners of America. He did some work for uh, uh, Right to Work. He's done a lot of political consulting, and um, he's a bit of a troublemaker, is Dennis. And I, I, I like that about him. Um, some people don't, but. Uh, Dennis Dennis knows how the political game is played and he's good at it. Um Rocky Marshall Sometimes it's is good to have somebody by your side who can sort of get in get in the mud. Get, absolutely. get in the slop and, and make some trouble. Yeah. That's right. And and Dennis is very good at that. Um <laughs> but he's also a very sharp guy and a very hard worker and he he understands what's going on and and uh I depend on him for good advice. I was surprised when he actually uh told me that he was going to run. Um I had him on my list of people to encourage to run and he called me and told me that he was going to and so I was pleased with that. Uh Rocky Marshall is a businessman out of Bernie, Texas. Um Rocky uh is uh, 
the the guy I know the least. I've only met him a couple of times, um, but he's served on the board. He's gotten himself elected uh, at at least once, maybe twice, uh, but always short fill-in terms. And he's tried to do the right thing when he was on the board. And I salute that and I applaud that. And I hope that we can get him on the board again. He understands business. He understands finances. Um, and he knows how to read a spreadsheet. And uh, that's that's a worthwhile uh, 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 understanding to have on your side. Um, and then the, the other candidate is uh, uh, Judge Phil Journey. And I've known Phil at least 20 years, if, if not longer. Phil served on the board back in the, the 90s with Dad. Um, he's uh, been a regular presenter at the Gun Rights Policy Conference for many years. And um, Phil is a judge out of Kansas. Uh, he's also served in the uh, state Senate in Kansas. He's also a uh, an avid shooter and gun collector and uh, an all-around great guy. And I, uh, Phil was on the board until this last election, and they didn't renominate him, and, and we didn't have the time to put together a, uh, a campaign for him that really worked. Um, and really, they changed the rules on how many signatures you need to get on the ballot, uh, they upped that significantly. Uh, and um, once you get on the ballot, it's still very, very difficult to get elected because most NRA members get all of their information about NRA from NRA publications. And NRA publications are controlled by Wayne LaPierre and those who are loyal to him. And so it's challenging it's really challenging to get anyone elected uh, by petition. And um, we're, we're going to try. Yeah. And, and these petitions, once again, they're available on your website, firearmscoalition.org. And uh, I'll certainly right. share and, those. I'd encourage people to, to, to download them, to print them, and, and to mail them in. That's the best way to, to do it, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you don't even need to download them. You can print them directly from my website. The... Um, the petitions, let's see if I've got one right here. Here's what the petitions look like. And if you can see, it's landscape format that this is the 11-inch and this is the 8.5 going up and down. They're posted on my website this way. So they you print them in portrait rather than landscape. Because if you try and print them in landscape, all of this is going to turn this way and be crunched up with white space top and bottom. And the NRA cares about that. If it's not printed correctly, they will disavow the entire petition and, and won't allow it. So what we ask, we're running low on time. And so what we ask is print out a petition and sign it if you're a, an NRA voting member. If you get a ballot in your magazine, your NRA number is on the label of your magazine, as is the proper address and how they have your name. And that's important, too, is uh, they have to be able to look at it and say, yes, this is this guy, and yes, this is his number, and yes, that looks like his signature. Um, with the time being what it is, 
I ask people to print one copy, sign it, put in the information, and mail it back to me, and I'll distribute them to the other guys, uh, and then print out another copy and go seeking other people to sign it. But what often happens is guys will say, well, I can get so-and-so and so-and-so, and I can go down to the gun club and I can collect some signatures, and they run out of time. And so it doesn't get to us in time to be of any use. So get the signatures that you can right away and send it in and then see if you can get some additional signatures. That's that's how I would ask you to do it. And, and when do you need the signatures, Jeff? It's our, the last... our deadline is we have to turn them in during the first week of November. And so we need to get them by the third week of October. So we've got three weeks um, right. and and there's mail time in the midst of that. So so please go ahead and get it signed and mail it back to me. We if if you can't find an NRA member number, go ahead and leave that blank. We can call NRA and ask them to look it up for us. But again, that's just adding more work and more time to what we're doing. It's on your NRA magazine label if you get one. Um, it's up in the top right corner of the label, and it's a, a long bunch of digits that start with a bunch of zeros. The zeros are just placeholders. They don't count. You don't have to include them. Uh, just start with the first real digit that's that's there after all of those zeros. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention, too, uh, the I, I know you mentioned the uh, Firearms Coalition, but you, you also write and your work is picked up on other websites as well. You mentioned Firearms News. I think your work is also picked up by, by Ammo Land. Where else can people find your work? Those are my primary. Uh, most of what I write is republished on my website, and you can go back for decades uh, looking at, at weekly columns, and you can really kind of get a uh, 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 taste of the news of the day at the time uh, from that. But um, Ammo Land, I try to be in there every week. Uh, uh, Firearms News, I try to be in there every issue, but uh, I get overloaded and, and don't get all the way. And I also produce a uh, newsletter. It's kind of irregular. I try and do quarterly. Uh, sometimes a little more than quarterly, but uh, it's it's been a bit of a rough couple of years for us, and uh, I've I've not been as good at getting those newsletters out as I would like to be. Um, but uh, anybody who's interested uh, on the website, if you give me your name and address, I'll be happy to mail you a newsletter. Um, if you make any kind of contribution, we'll add you to the list and, and we'll mail you the newsletter. We're working with a web designer to try and get that out by email and, and uh, other means. But, um, but those are the main, the main ways. I occasionally write freelance for some of the gun magazines uh, because I do do a little bit of just regular gun writing. And um, I, uh, I try and try and do that. But the main are Firearms News and Ammo Land and uh, my website and my newsletter. Well, I certainly appreciate your work. I, I've, I've been reading your work really since 2014, and, and I, I 
I think your contributions to, to the community, to, to the right to keep and bear arms and to the fight to preserve it are um, invaluable. So I, I thank you for, for the work that you put in. And I hope that our listeners will certainly get on your website uh, and sign a petition and send it in because we want these uh, folks, uh, you and, and these other folks, Phil Journey and um, and the others that you've mentioned here to, to, to get in a position where uh, the NRA can be reformed uh, when there are pieces to pick up. And, and that will happen, uh, I think, sooner rather than later. We, we don't know, of course, like you said, but, but we want the right folks in place because I think that the right to keep and bear arms needs a strong NRA. Uh, and of course, these other organizations are doing great work, but the, the NRA is hard to replace and it's, it's not getting replaced completely despite the uh, right excellent efforts of these other organizations. So, so right. thank you so much for, for the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I should say you and I, I, I've been reading your work for quite some time, but you and I just recently met uh, at Gun Rights Policy Conference. It was my first time attending. And, and for those who don't know, the Gun Rights Policy Conference is uh, an event put on by the Second Amendment Foundation. And it was a great uh, event for me uh, to meet lots of wonderful folks in the in the uh, community, the gun rights community. So uh, it was great to meet you, of course. And when I realized that uh, we were under a bit of a time crunch to get these petitions signed, we, you and I exchanged some emails and decided to go ahead and get this podcast uh, recorded so that we could get it out to folks. So so thanks for, for joining the show under such short time constraints. Well, thanks for giving me the time. I appreciate it. And I encourage folks, like you say, it'll be in the show notes, but uh, firearmscoalition.org is the website. There's lots of information there, and uh, I, I hope folks will visit and uh, maybe sign a few petitions for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much again for joining the show. I, I think certainly this mission runs in your blood. Uh, that's I think that's easy to say. Uh, so I think you're doing a wonderful job carrying on the mission uh, that your father embarked on. And uh, hopefully that we, we can continue this fight together for, for quite some time. And, and hopefully with a, a functional and resilient NRA going forward uh, in the not too distant future. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, th thanks again, Jeff. And I hope everybody enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe. Please share it uh, to help get out the word to uh, sign these petitions to help reform the NRA because we need a healthy and resilient uh, and vibrant NRA. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.